Robbie Thomas has perhaps one of the most challenging jobs imaginable, and that is to connect with those who have been the victims of crimes and the criminals themselves through the psychic field, which is extraordinarily challenging and draining on his own energy field. But as a result of his work, he's able to bring cold cases to fruition. He's able to give comfort to families who haven't known what's happened to their loved ones and much more. So without ado, let's go to Robbie Thomas. Hi, Robbie. Good to Hi, see how you. Are you. I'm good. good to you, too. <laughs> you know, Robbie, I interviewed you once for Guyam before, and uh, we had a wonderful conversation. I learned quite a lot about you, and one of them is that you're a super sensitive guy. You have right. a bunch of daughters. You have a long-suffering, loving, and patient wife who has <laughs> to deal with all this stuff you drag her through. <laughs> true, true. Absolutely. <laughs> Including in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. Oh, I know. You know it. Yeah. She's always there. She's the pillar. She... Uh, she picks me up and uh, when I'm down and she just holds everything together like glue. Yep. You're a lucky man. And, uh, she's, and she's a lucky woman. You're cause you're a good guy. You're here doing, you're fighting on the side of right. So let me read something. This has, this is from Sergeant Cliff Christ. And this is what he says about you. He says, this book shows step-by-step step how this whole process works, basically taking us to an underworld of essentially monsters into the darkest realms and you having to learn to interpret and sift through all this stuff to be able to find the truth of of a situation does right. that sound about right yeah it's um it's something else when you you sit with murderers and you get to in interview them you're looking at the, the seated side of evil um and you you go you become not complacent but you become cold and which i do and, and you, you put yourself in a different realm when you when you discuss the, the horrors of what they've done to to individuals now, on your show, I know you're not known to this, but we have a little bit of breaking news, which we can release on your, on your show, which is great. Um, videos of interrogations were sent to me today by a family in Kentucky, a double homicide, which we weren't privy to in the past, but everything that was said in the book on this case and the individual who committed suicide and on a deathbed give his confession the other two admitted on film, it was a cover-up, and there's a good cop inside, and in every profession, as you know, there's good, there's bad on either side. This happens to be a good police officer, didn't want to go down for the fall, because we were tied into finding out the corruptness in this case, and released five, if not six, interrogation videos of people, and two other suspects, admitted that the one individual did do the murder and the other one did admit that he was there and the police swept it under the rug. We got that today. It's big news. Um, it was supposed to hit the news actually in the newspaper tomorrow, but the circumstances have arose that now they have the video and they're going to rewrite the whole story and it implements a lot of people. Okay, you know what? We're going to we're going to back into this a little bit later, but while we're fresh on it, give people some background on what this case was about and what's the basically the importance of what just happened here. So they have a context for what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. A while ago I was contacted by a law enforcement officer Andy Delay. 
there was a double homicide in London, Kentucky. An older gentleman and his son were burned alive in a fire. Now, during that fire, the older gentleman had his arm cut off. The younger individual, his son, had a divot in his head 10 millimeters deep. And that would have been done by a baseball bat of anything very trauma, hard forced. Through eyewitness accounts, people who were told of the situation, us coming down and getting the confession from the one individual, things started to get swept under the rug. They did not want things to be played out the way it was or it truly did happen. We got to interview the one in individual and he confessed on tape. We had his tape. We had his tape. We bring it into the one detective. He goes in and he interviews Bobby. Bobby explains thoroughly what took place. And I looked at his interrogation videos now, just recent. It's about an hour, maybe a little bit longer. In there, he lies all through, back and forth, places himself on scene, off scene, who did it, who didn't do it. Finally, the truth came out when the detective said, I have a tape from that psychic and that law enforcement officer, others who have seen and heard you what you said. And he goes, yes. And he goes, do you want to explain more about that? And then he started going to the truth. And that's when the police officer shut the camera off. So not only did the individual stick himself in the scene, but the police officer already got the truth from him prior to and then goes back and hands us a blank tape and said there's nothing on the tape. So that's corruptness in, in its full bloom right there. Now we're in a different stage. We've approached the media, want to reopen this case, although we've already had the deathbed confession from the one individual who committed suicide. And we had confession now on film from the other individual, suspect number three, now we got corruptness from police. So now media is getting a hold of this, playing it out, and lo and behold, it's going to be a, a huge thing that's going to happen. I see the unfolding of this as some people are going to go to trial, some people are going to wonder what's going on, and all the family want is proper closure, and it labeled as a homicide, not undetermined. That makes perfect sense. And I mean, that, that you're able to participate in this way is really a blessing for them, but it gets us into another side of the subject. I mean, there, we could, because we started at this place, we can launch into a lot of different things, but I think it's important to address the fact that um, institutions of all kinds, the police force, academia, medicine, and so forth are all intimidated by any kind of an, a truthful, intuitive, and psychic knowledge that's coming through that's counter to their point of view or doesn't serve them. And you've had to deal with this quite a bit with police officers who simply, they, they want you shut out. They want your voice shut out. Um, they want that evidence that you're bringing forth buried. I would love for you to just share with us a little bit about looking into it from your point of view. There's always self-interest, but what's happening here where they simply don't want the truth to come forward that you can offer. Yeah, it, it, I think what it does is stymies them, for one thing. 
it also leaves a bitter taste in their mouth because we're talking about professionals who are supposed to be doing their job. And when they don't become that front line, and other than try to corrupt or withhold evidence, turn it around for their own self-worth, it's very difficult. And one and good example, again, during the, the testimonies of these individuals who were a part of this murder, the one individual let it slip out that he was working with one of the officers. So when I said in the book, and I read in there, I think he's on the take, the, the, the one police officer, mm-hmm. guy on film just made that plug perfect. It put him there knowing that the cop was on the take. Um, yeah, I think they're scared. I think they know that when we get involved in a case and when you work with good police officers who want the truth, like Sergeant Cliff Christ, who you mentioned there, we get down to the bottom of things. Um, Am I fearful of it? No, not really, because the truth needs to be known. These families need closure. You know, my, my email's full of families from all over, and they're just begging for help. And it's hard because I'm one man, and when you have an institution or a demographic of individuals who do not play that role proper and who hide elements of a case, it makes it very difficult for anything to be closed. So therefore, then we come forward and here we are and we're discussing it today. And the other part of this story too is, um, I think maybe even more challenging, is that you're met with skepticism as well, right? It's not just that you have corrupt cops, it's you have people who simply can't believe that this phenomena is functional. Talk about what it's like to go up against this skepticism all the time because, I mean, it kind of it ticks you off. It kind of hurts your feelings sometimes. You're doing your darn best to help out. Let's talk about how you meet, again, meet up against more garden variety skepticism in this process. Yeah, absolutely. I had an individual and another probably individual, his friend, follow me for around eight years and saying, I never solved this case. I never solved that case. You know, limestoning me throughout the internet for a long time. I thought, while he's doing that, I'm putting together a book, as you see, that took eight years for me to do. Now, every case he mentioned I didn't do is in that book. And you see all the law enforcement testimonials, all the letters from the family, it's in black and white, the writing's on the wall. So that kind of just shut the, the page, you know, the book on him, so to speak, and everything that he said for eight years. So taking the skepticism side, there's a healthy part of skepticism, skepticism, and then there's an unhealthy part of skepticism. When you become that left-wing individual who wants to really tear down a person, it only puts a person like myself, not on a defensive mode, but I go into offense so I show and prove the point of everything you said I did not do. And am I having the last laugh? Not a laugh, but I'm feeling good about what I've done because now that the public can see everything that you've said versus what really got told by the police and by the families and by behind the scenes information that the privy of the public have never seen is in the book. What about the media's involvement? How often does the media show up and handle it correctly? Because I'm not talking about media like the show The Medium, which, of course, right. is a very popular show for a long time. I, as I recall, did you know Alison Dubois or know of her? No, I knew of her. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that a little bit in my guy interview, but 
how does the media really handle these kinds of affairs? Yeah, I remember being in, um, it was 11 individuals passed away in a fire, burnt alive. It was a sad situation, Bardstown, Kentucky. I remember being in this area where we had all the media and I was doing a press conference. And this individual yells out, we don't want you here. You're not, you're not doing any good. And then the phone rings. And you can hear the phone ring, and my media coordinator rushes over to the microphone, hands me the phone, and it's the chief of police. And he says, yeah, we want to work with Robbie Thomas, and we want his, we want his report. So that goes back and forth again. Here's the good side, wanting to, to want the report, want to work with what my findings are. And yet you have somebody out there who is, like you say, skepticism in the media part and pushing you away. But yet they don't realize that behind the scenes, real work goes on. And we put our lives on the line out there all the time. We put our names out there. They're writing a story. They're writing the backdrop of what's going on, but they don't know the true details. So sometimes that hurts. But then when it gets reflected back again, like in this book, eight, you know, eight years, and I got eight years of all those cases that it did prove, now where do you turn? You know, you, you don't don't jump on them, but you just continue doing good. So yeah. yeah, media sometimes hurts themselves. They don't think they hurt me. They hurt themselves. But if they carry the story right and they get told properly and shown what is the real true aspect of it, I think they'll, you know, they come to respect you more that way. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts of it because, you know, people are very intrigued about people like you and what you do. And I want to talk about the part we opened with, which is kind of staring down these monsters and, and looking at, you're looking at the most evil elements of what drive humankind, um, kind of the most evil elements of our operating system as a species. And then I would guess you're also interacting with beings who aren't necessarily even of this realm. There has to be a combination of everything here. What does, what does what you call like, pure evil, monstrous kind of beings or characters or people on the other side, what does that look like to you? How does that show itself? Oh, it feels terrible. Um, I remember holding the, the recorder underneath Bobby's chin. And when I profiled him on Bristol board, we went back to the boardroom and an officer delay said, how can we, make this weakest link because I picked them out. They wanted to know which, which suspect I wanted to talk to. I said, let's pick the weakest link, Bobby. I said, I'm going to profile him of his character, what he did during and what he did after the murder. Now, after I wrote everything down and we looked at this, it took quite some time in the boardroom. And then we, Bobby agreed to meet us at the end of his driveway. We pulled up in the SUV. We played good cop, bad cop. I'm holding the, uh, the recorder. Detective DeLay got a little upset, tired of asking the same questions. Said, go ahead and ask him questions. And I put me on the spot. I never knew this was going to happen. He goes, you go ahead and ask him questions. So in the book, you hear street lingo. You have to lower yourself down to their level. My language is raw. It's direct. It's what they are. And they'll only respond in that cor correspondence with you. So as I'm going through this and I'm telling him, you know, what I thought of him. And then Officer DeLay goes, 
read that. And he pointed over to the SUV and he put on the back of the, the SUV and the kids reading everything I did and, and portrayed him. His jaw fell. He, he literally had nothing coming out of him. And then I started to say, you were there. I know you were there. You didn't take part, but you were there. And he's shaking his head. And I want him to verbalize, express what you're talking about. Finally, he starts talking. He says, yes, I was there. Yes, they did this. Yes, I, I witnessed all this. It was all on tape. And that's what got brought into the detective's office. The evil that you see through these kids, these people, these individuals who do this, it's there. They, they're soulless. Their eyes, you can look right through their eyes and see that they're soulless. They have no remorse, nothing within, within them at all. So you have to play this game with them. You have to become part of what they are. You tell them their feelings. You tell them what exactly what happened during the episodes. And then they're, they're, they're stymied. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say because you've already broke that wall, that barrier, and you know who they are. So then therefore, they come forward and they just literally just confess to what's going on. Well, they would have to. They're totally busted. They know you can see them. And, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of your witnesses, of course, are from the among the deceased, right? Sure. So sure. now you're talking about dealing in a realm of people that um, – are literally more in astral form or whatever form you know you, one would call that, and that has to make the living who are implicated in this incredibly frightened and uncomfortable of you. And this, you must have had a lot of harassment. Um, I think you've had death threats and everything as a result of the work you've done because these beings on the other side are pointing to the living who have done this. That's true. Um, letters, um, phone calls, you know, from leave those bones alone to, you know, many, many different conversations, um, you know, coming out to crime scenes and, and in our hotel room when America's Most Wanted film crew was filming us one time, we had a guy show up with a gun and yeah, you know, do I fear it? Not, no, I don't fear it because I went through to be a police officer twice. It's, it's the aspect of knowing that they're getting caught and we're on the verge of making a breakthrough. So it, it, it makes them fear who we are. Um, you know, you, you tie good police work in with a good psychic criminal profiler, you're going to get to the bottom of a lot of things in, in a case. Now, like you say, the other side talking to me, when I had Ronnie on the phone, and all he wanted me to do was come up his driveway, but I know he had guns. And that's all he wanted to do was shoot. So I said, you know, I'm going to talk to you on the phone. I told him on the phone that those two men he murdered were going to get into his brain. They were going to play with his soul. They're going to tell him exactly that the reason they're there is to haunt him for the rest of his life. He was kind of timid on the phone, got real angry. And after we hung up, that's when... About a week or so later, after we wrapped up our investigation, Andy Delaney and myself, and I had to come back to Canada, and Andy, Andy went to Florida, the suspect, A, number one, Ronnie, ended up giving a, a confession on his deathbed, and he committed suicide. And he said those two voices were in his head, and they were talking. So I knew what they were going to do. I knew that they were going to come at him. They were going to tell you. It's hard to hide the truth. When we're people on the other side. You take family away from family. These are two good men, and they're not going to let you alone. So they haunted him, and sure enough, look what happened. 
in a way, would you say it's almost a relief to be seen so they don't have to carry that secret with them any longer? On their side of things, as a criminal, um, their secret being revealed and him ending his life, that's his karma. Mm -hmm. That's his go with God. Now, he'll be instructed and in, in taught in his time. I'm no more with me anymore. That's, that's his part. As for Bobby now, who's still continually being in jail, and he, he's living this life, which is a hell to him, it's going to get worse because now we have all, all the information. We're going to put it together. Will he be relieved in the end when it comes through? I think he'll feel more better about himself when he's confined in a, a three-foot by six-foot jail cell and living the rest of his life, and the family will have closure, and at least they'll know and he'll know, and there's no more hiding anything. We're on an we're even keel here. So, you know, I go after them for the main reason. I put them away. I, I really don't care about their feelings because mm -hmm. they've already hurt family. So I go after them. I, I know it might sound cold, but when you do this and you see and you and you feel the, and you see the photographs and everything, you can't have emotion. You have to separate yourself. So I just go straight forward and I work with the law enforcement when we get them. Before we get into a couple of cases, um, I thought it's also you know worth talking about the point that you say in your book. You can't afford to ever be afraid of the perpetrator. These are scary guys. Um, you cannot afford to let fear enter into it because apparently it would distort things. And let's talk about that. And we're going to go into a couple of cases where we really look at the notion of interpretation of the information because that's also what you're known for. Is you have to take complex bag of you know symbols and images and words here and there and interpret them. But let's talk about that feeling about the perpetrators who I'm sure are trying to intimidate you from both sides. True, true. Um, it's not easy and it's not fun. You know, you look at somebody who's methodical, who's evil, you know, trying to trip you up, trying to get to you while you're trying to get to them and get to the bottom of the truth. You know, it's, it's a very complex situation. But when you look at the complexity of everything and you weave your way through it properly, time and patience prevail over somebody who thinks they got the gun or you know your thumb over top of you they don't they don't i take my time and as methodical they are i'm the same way i go over everything records who said what who did what and i give my my injection of what i see and visualize the police they piece it together it gives them the whole practical practice background of what's going on then everything fits so then there's no need to have fear because now we're on the momentum of pushing forward do i fear them no again i don't fear them you know they may think that but i've been doing it for 28 years and when i look at the 28 years and all the people have, have went up against and helped families it, it, there's there's nothing in the end that say you know they've they've actually come close to me um, if they have 
It's because I put myself there, sitting two feet between the murderer and me, sitting a foot holding a microphone underneath uh, underneath his chin, showing them that, you know, you can't run from, from spirit and from God. You can't. You're done. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> okay, what about, um, I, ju- I just want to kind of wrap up the notion of the type of beings you encounter on the other side because, you know, it's so interesting, and I don't know if you're even aware of it, but there's a whole kind of, uh, it's called conspiracy theory, but actually if you look at it, it's really not. That there is the notion that there are darker players who control or who attempt to manipulate humanity through a lot of different means, institutionally, right down to individually. And uh, people have different names for them. They're considered to be different types of on-planet, off-planet, interdimensional beings, and so forth. And one that comes up a lot is the notion of a reptilian kind of being that kind of bleeds through and oftentimes creates disturbances. Do you ever see these other kinds of beings at all? You know, when I see an individual who has a black shroud around them, Mm. the evil that is implanted, they become. My first case was 1990. So we're going back a long time ago. And when I seen this shroud, if you will, around this individual, it was his spirit from whatever was eating him, becoming him. And that's who he was. It was, it was terrible. When you look at people who are like that, and, and I, I, vision, I can see them in on cases and, and, and talk to them, I can get all that aura, all that shroudness, all the evil that's around them. The dark side of the entities that feed off of their fear, let's talk it that way, their fear, their, their eminent being, that's different because it's just total evil. Yeah, there's evil in this world, and yeah, there's good in this world. Angels walk among us, absolutely. Um, the devil's running loose, absolutely. There's there's the bads out there. I've seen it. I mean, I've put them away, and it feeds off of these characters who do these things. They become it. They live it. They're it. Um, you know, this bleed-through thing you're talking about, that is something what I would say would be the the dark side of everything that that individual Bobby become, Ronnie has become, Johnny has become, uh, Brad has become, all these guys have put away. These are all, the, you know, J- Lester Jones, all these guys. These were the evil that bled through into their soul. They are now that bled. That's what they are. So in your opinion, there really is, there are other forces that can come in and simply start manipulating and work their way into where they take over the psyche, the, being, the person themselves? Well, if you and I are of God, we are protected. We just don't become part of. We all have good and bad in us. Everybody does. You know, that's straightforward. Everybody has good and bad in them. Intentions, whatever, thoughts. But to become that bad, that John, that Brad, those guys, they were evil people to begin with. They've done evil all their life. You know, I can go through a whole scenario of each one of them, how much they burnt down places, robbed people, you know, on and on and on. The records are longer than my arm. You know, these are evil people. So the evil loves evil. It'll feed off of that entity, and that's what they become. Yes, so they become that seeping black shroud that we talk about. 
Thank you for that. I wanted to talk about a couple of cases, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen my first interview with you, which I would encourage them to go over to the Gaia archives and take a look at our first interview at Gaia TV. We talked about your mom and we talked about what happened when your mom was dying. We talked about those words that you heard, but not just you, the EMT heard as well. So let's just set up a little bit about what happened with your mom. And then I want to go to the Al Capone speakeasy after that and talk about that a little bit and how your validation finally came through in a photograph. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my mom, my, uh, my angel and, uh, best friend. Yeah. Um, the night before she passed away, I was, and a lot of people have heard of this sleep paralysis where you can't move, but you can, you feel, see, and what have you. I was held down, and it was the four horsemen. So it was the white horseman, the closest to me. And he was explaining to me and showing me what was going to happen that day. Then turned to me and said, it's okay, you'll be taken care of. And this is what's going to happen. You know, I didn't really want to believe it. I, you know, you just don't want to believe that type of thing. So the next morning, like always, I go over to my mother's house before I start my day and I go have a coffee. I walk in and her back's to me. And usually she meets me and greets me and hugs me and kisses me and, you know, good morning. She never did that day. I sit down and I told her, uh, you know, last night was really weird. I'm compelled. I really have to tell you what happened. And I started explaining to her. She turned then and told me to go home and that she'll watch my daughter later on that day. So I had that push-pull factor where I didn't want to – to leave and you know I want to stay but she asked me to go so I did I ended up at home and now I'm in the kitchen with my wife and my best friend what was really uncanny about this is my best friend never usually come over in the morning that early but he was there that day so I'm conversing with him and my wife but I kept an eye on the phone and I just knew the phone and it rang about an hour an hour and a half later it was my father in the other line screaming at your mother at your mother so we jumped in the car we raced over Sure enough, we get into the, um, to the house. EMTs are coming out. One's doing CPR, and I remember her little hand hanging over the side and her, her purple socks, and we off to the, to the races to the, to the hospital. And as we get into the emergency, and he's backing up the, 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 the ambulance and the other guy's guiding him in, I'm standing in the threshold of the door. And so they bring her down in the gurney, and as they get to the threshold of the door, the, the gentleman on top doing the compressions stopped and we stopped because we could hear what my mother was saying and she was saying goodbye and he looks at me and he goes, okay, go. So he left with the other guy pulling the gurney into the, uh, the ER. So now I'm waiting. And after they were done, he came out, mom, mom passed. He comes over to me and he says, I know you heard it. I heard it too. He goes, I swear she was dead, but she did say that to you. So I was like, oh, you know, so I'm not the only one. And he heard it. So it's just validation right there. Um, yeah, it hurts still. It's, you know, because, but every case I do, you know, as I have my wife as my pillar and I take her in death scenes with me everywhere we go, I always ask my mother too to be there and help me and clarify things and, and, and do what's right. So I know she's still there and she works hard with me. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Amazing life. Did and then now. Did you know, I mean, did you feel some comfort when your mother said it's okay, it's going to be okay, because you were able to hear her 
did that offer you now that this is your moment it's your family that's being impacted did that offer you comfort you know when you when you look at things in hindsight and the way you approach that question it makes me look like I, i've moved on and it was my time mm -hmm. and um the apron strings are cut yeah. can't always be there so it was for me to now to do what i got to do because she knew um yeah, I feel there's a letting go. I feel that um, it was time to move on. A graduation, if you will. But yeah, I do. I feel that. Let's talk about Chicago, the speakeasy, Al Capone, because this is a fun one. You know, it's had media and all that. Let's just talk about it for our, our viewers' benefit. Sure. Amazing time. Um, we were getting ready to do the Natalie Holloway case in Aruba. It was uh, BBC Radio, um, Donald Newsom, his brother, a uh, whole slew of people. Um, Going to go over and film it and, and look for Natalie. But then we got, the authorities were fine with it. Then we got to call everybody and their grandmother. We're over there combing the island and their economy was really falling because it was just too many people. So they asked us to stay back. So we did. And then the producer says, what do you want to do now? And I said, let's go to Chicago and film. It was called um, Ghosts and Legends. That was the original name of it. And then it turned out to be Dead Whisper. So we were in Al Capone's speakeasy. The night before we were going to film, about 4.30, 5 in the morning, I'm visited by Spirit. And the gentleman says, grab a pen and paper. I do. And he goes right down photograph and underline it. So I did. I underlined photograph and I put that down. And he's writing down certain information that he's given me and everything. And Paul Rica, the waiter. So I put Paul Rica, the waiter. And I get this all done. And I run over to Christopher. I run over to Christopher O'Brien's room. And I knock on the door. And he gets up and he's mad at me, you know, five o'clock in the morning, right? And I go, okay, fine. I said, but look at this. Look at this. He goes, okay, we'll show the producer. And we go down and show the producer. And sure enough, um, we go to Al Capone's that day, and everybody's still looking. I'm like, what would you do at 5 in the morning waking me up? So we're out there, and, and I tell Don, the owner. And Don Crest is actually the um, – he's on Chicago Fire. He's the fire chief in Chicago Fire, the NBC show. So Don's jaw fell, and he goes, just a minute. And he runs down this long hallway, and he comes back. He goes, I only got one photograph. He goes, it was between the walls when Al Capone – when they raided the place, Al Capone would go between the walls and he showed me it. It was really neat getting behind the wall where they used to hide and the candles were still there. And But he goes, look at this photograph. And he hands it and I go, oh my gosh. And he goes, that's the guy you described. And the right-hand man was Paul Rica, the waiter. And it was the exact same guy. It was like, holy crap. How, you know, that that just blew us all away. It was, it was a good, yeah, good validation. <laughs> I love it. Um, another case where there was some, we were talking about the way you interpret things and how to put things together. I found it kind of interesting. It had to do, uh, I think, what was her name? Was it Kimberly? I think her name was actually Victoria. But yes. let's go to, yeah, let's go to the interpretation of seeing a fox on top of Victoria's head or hat and how you had to distill this down into something that made sense. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I traveled back and forth between my city and another city about two hours, two and a half hours away to help this family out in a disappearance of her, of the gentleman's daughter, little girl. 
they said to me, I think it was the third time I was down there in, in a matter of days. They said, if she's around you, could you please reach out to her and, and try to find out something from her to give an indication that she's around us? And I said, sure. So I got home, frustration sitting with the detective in the detective's office, giving my drawings, you know, sitting there through the, the lie detector test of the father and, you know, just all that. And I'm home now and we're getting into bed. My wife's in bed. And I just blurted out. I said, Victoria, make a noise. Make a noise. Do something to show me you're here. And she did. She knocked five, she knocked five times on the wall like a baby baby's hand and my wife pulled the covers over her head she says what's that and she and I said that's Victoria and then my wife shifted in the bed really right over to me <laughs> you know just we just hate off and I said just wait I said Victoria show me something that now proves that you're around your dad and your family I seen a ball cap on a, on a girl and then a stuffed fox head on top of the ball cap oh you know I don't make I just drawing I'm just so what I say, I don't make heads or tails. I'm just drawing. And I draw this fox head and I draw this hat and this girl. I put it down, I'm done. Next day I call up Rebecca and I said, and she had me over the speaker phone to the family. And I said, okay, you asked me this question. This is what I got. And I told her about the knock, knocking on the wall and, and they thought that was fascinating. And then they said, okay, what else? And I said, well, she showed me a stuffed fox head on a ball cap that a girl was wearing. On, on the head and uh, you hear gasps in the background and then she goes she just bought him that hat yesterday and I knew nothing because uh, I'm not a race car guy but I knew nothing of Fox racing and apparently the only thing on a, on a hat of Fox racing is a, is a Fox emblem or a head on the hat and so that's what it was she was telling me that you know yeah so a miracle you know yeah <laughs> I love those kinds of stories. I love that kind of validation. Um, one of the things that you run up against it, it, with some people is that you have, and, and a lot of people who are psychic run up against this, is that you have this gift. And when you are given a gift by God, you should not monetize it. Right. And, you know, which is insane. If someone has a beautiful voice, nothing stops them from being a top selling recording artist making gajillions of dollars. But when you're psychic, people seem to think it's your obligation to give what your skill, talent, gift is away free. Now, right. that can't rub you the right way. I know a lot of psychics, and this is just not clear thinking. No, no, it's true. Reality has to set in. When it becomes a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week type episode with me being called from India, from Australia, America, Canada, and the demand is there all the time, you know, what do you do? And if you spend, they say, well, you solve cases in minutes. You, you found a person alive within an hour. You, you, you know, you solved the murder within an hour, two weeks, you know, that you can't charge. And I say, well, it doesn't matter. It could take a year too. And if I'm still there, I'm your priest, I'm your psychologist. Uh, you call me all through the nights. Um, you know, it's on and on and on and on. And I, I take myself and I displace myself from my family for days and weeks at a time going to your family. And my wife coined a phrase over the years. And she says, you help perfect strangers. 
and the perfect strangers are people that she's never met or that she's going to meet, but it takes me away from my family, putting my life on the line for a week, two weeks at a time. How do you dissipate and figure out money? I just come up and say, look it, it's, a, it's, an easy, it's an easy go. This is my fee, and, you, and we come down, you agree to it, you pay it, that's the way it's going to be because I'm still tied with you, Not even though the case is over too. Even though the case is over, I'm still tied to those families for years. And, they, and you know, so it's, it's a long time. How do you justify that? You justify it by the time that it takes me from my whole life that I can't go out and get a regular job. If I went out and got a regular job, nothing would get done. I wouldn't be able to do it. I just wouldn't be able to do it. So when I'm off into D.C. and I'm with the DSA for five days and I'm online from 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning till midnight going through everything, that's a lot of hours. How do you figure all that out? You know, some people charge $100, $200 an hour, professions, whatever. Some people more. Um, I've seen um, private eyes charge $25,000 a case, get nowhere. What do you do? So you can't have a guarantee, although my record is very solid. I always tell people there is no guarantee. We can't say that there's going to be a guarantee. I can bring your daughter home, find your daughter, or what have you. But I'm there, I'm helping, and this is what you're going to do. You're employing me. So, yeah, anybody out there, you know, you have to realize that it does take money to do something. I can't fly myself $1,000 away, stay in a hotel for two weeks, feed myself, and then turn around and go, thank you very much. And that cost me three grand. It just doesn't work that way. No, it's not reasonable for anyone to ever ask or expect that of you. And then one other thing, too. You just said there are no guarantees. Sometimes you're in the middle of a case and it just flat goes cold. And you say sometimes it also is the beings on the other side. They're not going to let you progress. They're saying, leave it alone. Let's talk about what happens when you're on it. It's hot. And then, boom, it just goes cold. Yeah. Perfect example. We're in D.C. and I went to DSA and the FBI found the car in Virginia. And I went down this road and Homer, Detective Homer says, okay, get in the car. I sent him all my, my stuff from Canada to there all my writing drawings and prior to going. So he's driving all over Maryland and he goes, is this it? He's trying to throw you off the track. That's what they do, right? They want to see if you're authentic. And I said, no, Homer, go to the next spot. And I said, Homer, stop the car. You know, we're, take me to the place. He pulls the car over and says, get out. So I get out and he sits upon his car. He's like this. He's just staring at me. And he goes, I don't know how you do it. He goes, that road, that little road you circled on the map that I handed you the night before. He's handed me a map of Virginia and Maryland said, Binder. That's what he did. I went back to my hotel room. I circled it, and that was it. By Andrews Air Force Base, little, little road. Took you to Highway 4 to Virginia and come back in the backside. So he says, I don't know how you do it. And he goes, um, I'm, not, I'm a non-believer of this. But he says, I just love how you figured it out because all those years, he goes, I narrowed it down to that road, and that's where she was murdered. And pinged off the tower, her phone pinged off the tower over here, and by Andrews Air Force Base, he goes, you did not know that. He goes, I don't know how you did it, you did it. Yeah, so, you know, you look at stuff like that, and then it goes cold. Murdered there, absolutely. Find a bag with items that pertain to the murder that are very similar to that murder absolutely the guy's tools her chain shirt flip-flops weapon uh flip bones everything mom's cia okay mom is cia so mom didn't want to take stand against him put her daughter as a hooker heroin to 
dirty her good name, please get upset. So I'm taking you behind the scenes now. You're not going to do what we want you to do. We're washing our hands of it. They handed the case over. We're done. We're not helping you no more. Yeah. That's how it happened. Mm. A year to the very day, I get a phone call. They found her, Rob. You're right. They found her. It was like 100 feet from the road, like you said, wrapped in a blanket. Oh, well, we're waiting for dental records now because that's how we decayed. We had to wait. Um, get a phone call. I found somebody else's baby. And sometimes spirit on the other side leads you to find something different. Although we already have part of the case, this is what it is. Can't arrest him because she went missing outside the county where her phone pinged in a different county, that type of law in Maryland. So we're still trying to work on getting him. Uh, it's entangled. Yeah. Yeah. You have stated that living this life and having these skills are a curse and they're a blessed curse. What do you mean by that? Yeah. A blessing would be, you know, or, or a blessing would be knowing what we do know of the other side. A curse, um, having this on me to see what I see all the time from all the bad, and it doesn't stop. I relive every murder case every night. I go over it. What if I could have done this better? What if I could have done this faster? I was showing that she went in the tree line two days before she went missing. I knew that girl was going there. Now I'm, I'm finding her dead body. This is the curse part. A blessed cursing would be the fact that I'm there for the families. I know that life continues on, but there's still that stronghold knowing that there's the evil out there. But we all got to do the one thing. And my mom left me with three words, and it was keep the faith. I wear it around my wrist every day. It's right there in, in the little, and it says keep the faith. I tell everybody that. Life does go on on the other side. It's so prevalent and it's true, and I've proven it. And it's not that I've proven it. I mean, I think they prove it. And this is not through me. It's through many people around the world. We all know. So, you know, looking at it as a curse, yeah, it's a curse because I do all these cases. Um, people say, how do you do it? Like, why do you do it? Well, I went through to be a police officer twice. That's what I really wanted to be. but. I can expand now and go around the world and do it. Just not in a little community, but get and help in a bigger realm, broader scale. That's what I wanted to do, and I'm doing it. Um, a cursed blessing is, like I say, I mean, you can't have the good without the bad, and that's the truth. Well, as you say, there is evil among us, and there are angels among us, and I would say that you're on the angelic side. You're I hope so. <laughs> You're doing the thing that that most people simply can't do, and it's something that's necessary. And as I said when we started this interview, I, I've said this even when I've done talks in public at, at um, conferences and such, this world isn't going to make sense to us no matter what you're talking about, as I said in the beginning, whether it's finding new cures in medicine, uh, whether it's finding a new way to educate our children, whether it's discovering the actual facts about our history as human beings archeologically, none of this is really going to come together until we include the voice of people like you, the intuitive voice and the collective intuitive voice into the conversation. And so in your world of, uh, criminal investigation, I think you and people like you are absolutely 
critical to the story. And I'm just sorry that the institutions still harass you for what you do. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you look at the things there. It's not so bad now. I mean, you go back years ago. It was tough. But in the latter years, you know, I've been coined um, the Rolodex. I'm from Detective Andy. I've done cases with him and other law enforcement. And they just pick up the phone and call and say, can you help? And sure enough, I'm there. Um, it's difficult looking at someone who's skeptic, like you say, uh, going into cases. Uh, my gosh, I can go through. I remember a detective saying to me, all right, I'll give you five minutes of my time. If anything you say is right, then I'll call you back. So a friend of mine who was the dope with the Doe Network, his brother-in-law's daughter was murdered. So I do my drawings like we've talked, and I sent it off to Boston. And sure enough, I waited. I thought, oh, this guy's not going to call. He's thinking I'm a fluke or whatever. Phone rings, and he's yelling on the phone. He's going, how much information did they tell you? you know, and I go, I didn't tell, they didn't tell me anything. Tommy's straightforward individual works for the Doe Network. I know nothing. I just got a photograph of her, and that was it. He goes, how'd you know I had the guy in jail right now? I was just on and on and on and on. So you're trying to convince an old school type individual, old, you know, that type of style, that new age is here. And, you know, it's very relevant. We need this. Yes. Absolutely do. And all of this is detailed in your book, Psychic Profiler. Is it available now on Amazon and all the major booksellers, Robbie? Yes, absolutely. If you don't have it in your bookstore, they can order in for you. Amazon.com, CA, around the world, what have you. And visit my website, RobbieThomas.net. Very good. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for your time. It's good to be with you again. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Again, Robbie's book is Psychic Profiler, Robbie Thomas. So you want to go ahead and pick up a copy of that at Amazon and other major booksellers. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.